0: because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: You're listening to Rico Decode. I'm Jason Del Rey, in for Kara Swisher. I'm the senior correspondent for commerce at Rico, And this is a podcast about power, change, and the people you need to know around tech and beyond. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Larry Gracia, former editor for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Los Angeles Times. And most recently, the author of a book about disruptive startups called Billion Dollar Brand Club, how Dollar Shave Club Warby Parker and other disruptors are remaking what we buy. Larry, welcome to Rico Deacon. Thanks,
2: it's a pleasure to be here, Jason. So
1: the reason why I think... I'm doing this today is because I pay a lot of attention to the space, the rise of these companies, and so I I was really, really intrigued by this book and this topic. It's one I've thought about a lot. We're going to start with the book, but I do want to talk about a whole bunch of stuff beyond that. Your career, you've managed and overseen coverage that's won a bunch of awards during the financial crisis, other big important parts of our business history. And so I'd love to get your perspective right? of, of what we're seeing in sort of tech and, and the business world beyond. Let's start with the book, though. Before this book, what was the last time you actually were had a byline or were writing? Because <laughs> you, were, you, were an, you, you, were, you were editing for, for a long time. I've been an editor
2: probably for several decades. I mean, occasionally I would write a story, but, you know, I was, uh, when I got out of university, I was a reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times initially for about four years, did a lot of general assignment stuff, but moved over to the Wall Street Journal, uh, where I reported probably for about 10 years, 15 years of the 25 years I was there, and wrote about a lot of stuff. At one point, I actually wrote about retailing. That was well before e-commerce, yep. so I
1: can tell you, Jason. You and Kara alike, <laughs> both both covered retail at one point. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, it's a fascinating kind of industry. It's an industry that touches everybody's lives. Uh, and obviously, it has to do with, you know, kind of the people who produce it, too. So it's not just—it's a multifaceted business. But getting back to your— question. The last time I really wrote much was probably 25 years ago. I was the London Bureau chief at one point, and I spent about probably a third of my time uh, for the Wall Street Journal. I spent about a third of my time uh, writing and about two-thirds of my time editing. But, you know, since the mid-'90s, it's been really full-on editing. So, how did this idea and this book come about? So, I actually knew Michael Dubin, the founder of Dollar Shave Club, before Dollar Shave Club. He was a friend of my daughter, Lisa's, and he had always was, had an entrepreneurial bent. You know, around 2011, uh, he's he a digital marketing executive. He found himself out of a job, and he decided to start a company that would sell razors online. And I heard about it, and remember, I would worked for The Wall Street Journal. One of my postings for The Wall Street Journal was in Boston where I covered Gillette. Mm. Now, Gillette is a formidable company, great product— Great marketing, spends hundreds of millions of dollars marketing in advertising. Ma-
1: marketing machine.
2: Uh, its market share in the U.S. for not years but decades was around 70%. I mean, think about that for a second. This rare consumer product company. So it's a real powerhouse. Yep. And so I hear that Michael is planning to start a company that is going to compete with Gillette. And I don't say it to him, but I say to myself – that is one of the craziest ideas. I just don't get it. He's going to be looking for something else fairly soon. Right. Okay. So now, flash forward. I think it was even before the, he had put the name Dollar Shave Club on my company. Flash forward 2016. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm working for the LA Times as managing editor, driving to work, 7 a.m., listening to NPR, and I hear on the radio <laughs> that – Unilever has purchased Dollar Shave Club for Mm. $1 billion. Now, I gripped the wheel firmly (laughs) to make sure I didn't swerve, but I actually said out loud to myself, Michael did it. I I, I was that— They are going to
1: say no effing way, but (laughs) that that
2: too. (laughs) And and, and it made me think, um, how did that happen? What changed on the landscape that allowed this to happen? And, and oh, by the way, when I started looking into it, I realized it wasn't – he was one of the early direct-to-consumer brands, yep. early movers. But it was – and Warby Parker had been a little bit before him. But there, in every category you could think of, you know, mattresses, bras, contact lenses, I mean, you cover it, so you, you Lug- know it. Luggage, and, and, and toothbrushes,
1: and so, toothpaste, yes. Uh, uh, At this point point now.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and so it was really, as a business journalist who'd cover a lot of big stories, like you said, the financial crisis, 2008, uh, the rise of Facebook, you know, the rise of Google. Heck, the rise of Microsoft. Right. (laughs) I go back that far. I am like, this is one of the more remarkable stories that I've seen. And as a journalist, when, you know, it's great when you don't really know the answer going in, you yep. have some thoughts about it, but your your curiosity is peaked. And the other thing, which I found really interesting, because I knew Michael, and I, as I kind of got into it, I, I realized more, most of the people who started these companies were in their 20s or 30s. They didn't know anything about the product that they were kind of getting into, that they decided to sell. But... It would turn out to be an advantage, mm. not a disadvantage because that enabled them to think outside the box as opposed to, I'm going to compete on the terms of the big guys. So the guys at Warby Parker, uh, four students at uh, University of Pennsylvania's Wharton Business School, uh, they started – the idea was this initially a class project. And they figured, hey, look, if we don't start a business, we'll get credit for it. Right. Uh, you know, uh, Emily Weiss of Glossier, she started a blog when she was working for Team Vogue in, in her t- early 20s. And it was so popular, she said, there is an interest, there is a need for this. So, you know, kind of maybe that's how she started a company. Uh, the founders of Third Love, Heidi Zach and her husband uh, Dave uh, Spector. So she had been in retail. She was interested at some point in, uh, you know, they were interested in maybe becoming entrepreneurial. And so you talk about
1: thinking outside the box and not coming from the industry. What was the actual disruption that you believe these brands brought? And 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 I, I should say, so the book is, you sort of dip in and out of different stories about different companies. And different part ways of this that made this possible. Yeah.
2: Okay. First of all, all these companies, the most successful ones, saw a problem and fixed it, saw a need and filled it.
1: So- Give me an example.
2: So mattresses, (laughs) kind of going to a mattress store to buy a mattress is one of the most miserable experiences that any consumer has. Which, you you know, the salesperson stalks you around the store, they try to upsell you to the most expensive thing. Yeah, you don't believe,
1: can't believe a word. You know,
2: they say, try this one out, lie down on it for 30 seconds and a minute, and you're supposed to be able to tell whether you get a, you can, you know, it's gonna be good for you when you're sleeping on it all night, night after night. So you buy it, you get it at home, Two or three days later, you he said, hey, this is not like either too soft or too hard, not working for me. Can I return it? Yeah, you can return it. 20% restocking fee, you know, or 10%. And, oh, by the way, we're going to charge you kind of the shipping fee back. You know, by the time that's done, you know, you got several hundred bucks out of your pocket, you know, kind of maybe you're not going re- to return it.
1: You're not returning. it.
2: Okay. So, so the guys at Casper and Tuft and & Needle, which actually was ahead of Casper and kind of going to the market, said, hey, you know, kind of there's got to be a better way. And so, you know, they came up with the idea, we'll sell a mattress, we'll ship it to you right at your home. Uh, It'll be reasonably priced. It's not the lowest-priced mattress, but it's far from the highest-priced mattress, kind of good quality. And if you don't like it, you can return it free of charge. What they do is donate to charities. And, you know, you could sleep on it for 30 to 60 days. I mean, what's not to— like about that experience, so yep. that was uh, one so well, problem. Isn't,
1: and, and so, in that case, not necessarily even a physical product invention or or innovation, but um, we'll get to the marketing, the marketing disruption part of it. But yep. a service,
2: yes, a service disruption. customer experience yep. disruption. You know, similarly, the guys at, at Warby Parker. You know, why should I? Pay up to seven hundred dollars for a pair of prescription eyeglasses. So, you know, they came up with the idea, you know, starting as low as ninety-five dollars. But also, let's make it convenient. We'll send to your home because nobody's going to buy a pair of glasses without seeing what it looks like. We'll send to your home five pairs. Pick the one you like. Send it back, uh, and then we'll get your prescription in it and, and send it to you. You know, there, there's the unlock. There, There's right. a thing that kind of gets over the, you know, kind of hesitation that people might have. In every case, there's a bit of a how do I make this – first of all, how to make it more convenient, better experience, and in some cases, lower price. I mean let's face it, you know, kind of as, as Michael kind of Dubin said, $5 for a Razor cartridge, you know, and the inconvenience you have to often – because they're so expensive, they are – we're prone to being shoplifted. So, uh, you know, you go to a store and you have to ask a clerk to unlock it. It's behind a, you know, locked glass case. Right. Uh, Kind of heck with that. I'll send it to you at home. I'll I'll give it to you every month on a subscription. And by the way, that's good for me because once I've got you, you'll kind of have recurring revenue. I can look at the lifetime value of the customer because to offset my marketing cost to get you the first time. So all of these companies had some kind of a light bulb moment often with, I'm a consumer. This is something that I don't really like about the way this product is sold. It's been dominated by a big company, you know, their customers are the retailers. Yep. I mean, yeah, In the end, they are the the, the, the the real people, but they're really pleasing the retailers first instead of thinking the way the customers want to do it.
1: With a lack of actual data on – and feedback from their end customers. Yes,
2: right. If there's another kind of – we, we talk about, you know, kind of the why. So, all these problems had existed before, right? So, why were they being solved now? Why could they be solved now and it was because of technology people say are these technology companies well they're kind of hybrid companies i would say they're 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 technology companies and they wouldn't exist without technology 10 or 15 years ago uh jason you have an idea to sell razors yep okay what do you have to do you have to go to walmart or walgreens and say will you carry on bended knee will you carry my razor What, what what's your name you know, kind of why, why, you know, kind of I'm going to get a, all the stock and, oh, by the way, how much do you advertise that people are going to know about your brand? Okay. Go to 2010. All of a sudden, the internet comes up. You don't need a retailer. There is unlimited shelf space yep. online. Okay. So that is one thing. And at kind the time, there's
1: burgeoning what, you know, s- something that's sort of a, a big storyline now. There, At the time, there's burgeoning digital marketing channels. Exactly. That are affordable. Affordable, Then.
2: then. So, so, you know, kind of again, 10 or 15 years ago, you needed tens of millions of dollars if you wanted to have national advertising for a consumer product to get any kind of attention. But all of a sudden, with Facebook, you know, uh, uh, social media marketing, or with viral marketing, which can help too, you can do that for tens of thousands. First of all, you can start with thousands. You can do it with tens of thousands, and then you can ramp up to hundreds of thousands. And the advantage is you can also target those customers which are most likely to uh, buy from you and part of it is a demographic thing but of course facebook and ends up kind of becoming issues later on with other businesses they do you know facebook has something called lookalikes Yep. okay so with google you know they're great at if somebody searches for something then they'll feed you an ad for that
1: right when someone has clear intent
2: facebook you don't actually have to search for it. They know the demographics of the people who are responding to your ads or buying your things. And they're gathering that data, and they say, okay, look, we'll show this ad to lookalikes, people who look like those people who have already purchased from you. I mean, think how that helps you target and get you know, more response for less money.
1: Yeah, I think one thing—you know, I've covered Dollar Shave Club pretty closely, but one thing I guess I I may have overlooked was how deeply—you know, there's the story of the great viral launch video that, you know— 26.6 na-
2: million to date
1: yeah. <laughs> views. Yeah, and just insane. Um, the length or the, the the significance of their sort of dependence on Facebook in the early days and how through an, an outside agency, how they— Ampush in San yeah.
2: Francisco. Again, which is I kind of focus on the book, you know, three guys who, you know, went to to Penn. They went to Wall Street. They were making a lot of money, but they were kind of bored. They wanted to do something entrepreneurial and kind of stumbled on digital marketing. And initially, was focusing on fa- uh, Google. And then they kind of had, you know— how do we take advantage of this new thing called Facebook? And mm-hmm. that was their genius and got them a lot of the DTC companies and hooked up with uh, Dollar Shave Club. And together for a few years, really, that was a, you know,
1: on a rocket. We're here with Larry Gracia, who's the author of a new book called the Billion Dollar Brand Club, how Dollar Shave Club, Warby Parker, and other disruptors are remaking what we buy. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back in a bit.
0: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
3: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
1: In this book, you focus on what have been a lot of the winners of this space. Dollar Shave Club, Warby Parker, still a private company. I think by and large is seen as a sustainable growing business that at some point will have a positive outcome. Yes, and Um, probably do an IPO, yep. um, Third love, which I think
2: is going to have a positive outcome.
1: Third love, we we can get to that as well. Going in, what did you think you might see in terms of similarities and what might have been a surprise by uh, what you learned about? Successful ones. I, I, I want to talk about the ones that are, have not been so successful. And, as and well. I've got a
2: bit on yep. that, as you know, yep. in, in in the book. Uh, because uh, in any small business trend, you're not going to have everybody be a winter winner. So you know, kind of one of the things that I found interesting and surprising, in addition to kind of what I mentioned earlier, which is that these people didn't actually know anything about the product. Yeah. They just you know kind of knew that there was a need that needed to be filled. Was there isn't one model for success? So Dollar Shave Club and Hubble are basically, you know, buying outsourcing from an Asian manufacturer, you know. They
1: are not vertically integrated, which was... Putting,
2: you know, kind of a label on it, marketing it, you know, their innovation is a customer experience uh, marketing innovation. If you look at Warby Parker, uh, Warby Parker, For the most part, it doesn't make any—it started making some lenses, but it designed its frames. That was kind of—but, you know, kind of the frames, it doesn't make. Right. You know, uh, and and early on, it didn't make any lenses. Again, it's innovation, uh, and it was a lower price point, okay? Third Love is a little bit different. Um, Third Love is not a lower price—in fact, Third Love is a higher price point than its main competitor, uh, Victoria's Secret. But— what they've done is say kind of uh, uh, Heidi Zach, uh the co-founder with her husband, one night is rummaging through her bra door when they're getting ready to go out and says, you know, I can't find one that, you know, is comfortable and fits right. Uh, there's got to be a better way. And they weren't actually – they were thinking of starting a business. They weren't exactly sure. And that was where they decided, you know, bras would be good. And the idea they came up with was half-size bras. So they have – twice as many sizes as, you know, kind of most of the bigger
1: companies. The idea started actually with like an app. I remember having my wife try out the app, which would tell you your size right, and it's right. kind of clunky. It, and, it was a little bit complicated. Yeah.
2: And they then they went to a questionnaire, a uh, well, detailed questionnaire. And by answering that questionnaire and then collecting all that data from – first of all, hundreds of thousands, but now millions. I think there are over 10 million people have answered that questionnaire can more precisely, kind of using artificial intelligence, figure out what is the right size for you. And, oh, by the way, you know, if you don't like it, you can return it within 30 days. But again, getting back, the, the point on there was it was a higher price. To, they, they say we were going to make a premium product. So I, I think I went into it thinking that all these, comp- it was a bit of a template. And while there are things in common, there are differences Two. And, uh, you know, a smart entrepreneur will figure out, you know, kind of what is that thing that I can come up with? Is that going to fill the need? And there might be different needs. Sure. You know, kind of some of them may be big needs and some of them may be uh, uh, small needs. I mean, for example, if, we, if you look at the eyeglass category. Right. Okay. Warby Parker, obviously the best known name there. There's another startup called Lensable. You know, which I, which I stumble across. I'm not sure if it's a big market, but I think it's a niche market. And that's another thing that's kind of great about what's going on. Uh, so Lensable, so let's say you've bought a, a pair of that's glasses. That's a lower price, correct? You've bought a pair of glasses. Sure. And you love the frames, and you get a new prescription. It's like, I, hey, I love these frames. You go back to the optician and say, hey, can you just put, you know, kind of new lenses in this? And they're kind of like, no, we want to sell you another full pair of glasses so we can make more money. So Lensable is you send in your frames— Send in your new prescription. We'll send it back to you, right? Right. Uh, So, you know, kind of there, you know, kind of again, that's a slightly different model. And you have this proliferation of of models. And the internet allows this. It allows, you know, all sorts of niche players. So again, I mean, I think that you're right. There are some big winners, big exits. Harry's is another one, uh, along with Dollar Shave Club. And there'll be modest winners. Uh, There'll be niche players. And there will be some losers because that's the way of the world, and that's the way it, has, it should be. Not all the companies, you know, are going to be big winners. Not all of them are going to be billion-dollar brands.
1: One of the questions I get about this space, and, I mean, you know, you touch on a little bit in, in the book, is um, a lot of these companies are venture capital-backed. And I've had many conversations over the years with some yeah, of the investors. Some of the investors um, you talk to in the book, uh, like Kirsten Green, and uh, who was recently on this podcast, and um, some others about – why Why are these businesses venture-backed businesses? You know, t- historically, you know, there there are examples of big retailers that h- had venture capital back in the day. Um, but historically, venture capital, you want to invest in, yes, disruption, but scalable businesses that, you know, um, you build something once like software and, right. you know, and you can, the amount of customers you can reach are sort of infinite. And uh, yes, I'm painting with a broad stroke, but but a lot of these businesses don't, wouldn't strike the average person as as venture capital-backed.
2: And they didn't strike most venture capital people (laughs) initially as venture capital back, So Michael Dubin, you know, kind of and and his initial uh, incubator backers, I think, had to talk to 50 or 60 companies before they got, you know, kind of enough money to actually launch. These early
1: companies, you know, some of which have seen success— they inspired a lot of, I think, Me Too venture capitalists yep. to invest in a lot of right. Me Too companies. And I guess I just wonder um, there are some people who think we, we're seeing sort of the ramifications of that yep. now with seven or 10 companies Electric in every Yeah, and so. I guess I wonder what what you think about right. the idea that these these should not be funded. Some a lot of these should not be funded from by venture capital and the ramifications of that on the industry.
2: Right. So th- so there's again a big range. You know, there are actually some companies that have done well without much funding. Tuft and Needle was basically sure. bootstrapped. Yep. Sold for four hundred to five hundred million dollars a year and a half ago to Uh Two founders who still had ninety percent of the company. Right. Do the math. Yeah. You know. So they they did very well. There's a watch company in Venice, California called Movement MVMT. Right. Yeah. Clever, right? I think they were sold for one hundred to two hundred million to Movado. Movado. Yeah. And and again, kind of a, a, a bootstrapped
1: deodorant and deodorant brand native, native. one hundred million to Procter. So so yep.
2: you know. And then you have companies that are so Third Love uh, until you know, maybe about a year ago had like $25 million, $30 million in venture funding. I think they've increased that, but not by a huge amount. Yep. Okay. That required them to be very disciplined <laughs> in the way that they, you know, marketed and did. And then you have some big companies who have raised a lot of money. And some of them have actually done quite well. For example, Glossier, I think, has raised quite a quite a bit of money. I'm not they sure, have. kind of around 100 million, maybe a little bit more. So I think the key thing is, first of all, what is the potential market size that that you're going for? You know, kind of the bigger potential market, the more venture backing you probably can support. Yeah. Okay. We're talking in general, right? Yep. Um, uh, You know, the cosmetics business is a kind of huge, many billions of dollars business. You know, the smaller the market is, you know, the less venture backing it can support. Or the more crowded a market is, the less venture backing it can support. So let's go to mattresses. Okay. And Casper... Uh, recently came out with some pre-IPO numbers which you know kind of were a little bit, oh my gosh, they're losing how much money?
1: You know? Not a total surprise to people who've been like paying attention right. or like in that industry. Right. But I think to broader business world, they, it was a it was an oh my God, they're they're yeah. losing they're spending this right. much on marketing and they're losing this
2: much. Right. So let's look at that category and, and and why maybe the venture capitalists got something a little bit wrong there and why maybe the Casper People got a little bit wrong there. And it has to do with a couple of things, I think. First of all, uh, as we've talked, the barriers to entry for consumer products because of the technology unlocks fell. Yep. All sorts of new products you can introduce. Okay. In mattresses— And
1: digital marketing s- super has gotten more and more expensive.
2: Yeah. But in, in mattresses, the barriers to entry collapsed. Jason, you and I could start a mattress company yep. tomorrow. Yep. I mean, really, there are dozens and dozens of mats. You know, you, you get you somebody. Took my, just,
1: you took my next story you, idea.
2: You, you you kind of you 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 get you know kind of a foam mattress, and you get some people to sew kind of a top onto it. I've been to the factories. I mean, you know, kind of, it is not rocket science. Okay. As a result, you got a lot of people entering that market. Very fierce competition. In fact, the chapter on that in my book is called The Mattress Wars. Yeah. And I talk about the bare knuckles, raucous free-for-all that went on. Okay. And so, Casper, wanting to be the top dog, raised a lot of money and started spending a lot of money. And I think they got a little bit undisciplined. And their thinking was, you know, hey, this is like, you know, a tech company where it's a social network. We'll spend a lot of money. That'll crowd out everybody else. In fact, their spending money didn't crowd out anybody because the barriers of entries are so low. Their spending may have actually helped everybody else benefit you know, from awareness, sales. Because awareness. Awareness for the, awareness, the category. Okay. But I don't think they're totally indicative of everybody in that industry. Purple is a public company. Purple yep. Innovation is yep. the name of the company. It's about as big, maybe slightly smaller than Casper. I forget the exact numbers. But it's around it, the same size, I it's think. It's profitable. Okay, it's not losing what was the Casper number, $60, $80 million a year, kind of annualized basis. Tough to Needle, because it was bootstrapped, was profitable from very early on. So, uh, you know, very good question about, and and final, final question by point about mattress business, that has been disrupted. It's a $16 billion a year business retail in the US. Five years ago, probably $50 million or less was bought online, better in the box. That figure last year, People in the industry told me it was going to be $2 billion, and it keeps going up. So that industry has been disrupted. And I think the lesson is for venture capitalists is, you know, um, not all of these markets are the same. Yeah. Not all these products are the same. You have to look at the size of the market. You, look, you have to look at the ease of entry of the new players. And you have to calibrate, you know, kind of how much you're going to invest. And, oh, by the way, the founders ought to calibrate how much they raise – Right. And I think what we've seen
1: has been an especially risky formula has been entrepreneurs with no experience in the market coupled with – and Casper is actually not an example of that because Philip Krim has – comes yeah. from that yeah. industry. Right. Um, but what, this, the cases where we have entrepreneur, no market experience, but innovative ideas on how to disrupt – with investors who are have become sort of Me Too investors, desperate and, to and, get a piece of the action. Yep, and and also like frankly, just need to spend the capital they're raising in their in a frothy market. And where their
2: returns elsewhere aren't very good. And um,
1: there are examples where that has just been that has just Disaster. been disastrous. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I I just wonder, you know, this isn't even a question, but I wonder with Facebook and you know the 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 arbitrage that was available in digital marketing being gone, yep, so or much narrowed, yep, and and so we're seeing companies hitting ceilings and opening sometimes opening brick and mortar is a smart idea, other times it's a sign that you've reached a, hit a ceiling, mm-hmm. and so you know there are a lot of people in the industry who just believe the next few years. Can, will be very bloody for this category. I think it will
2: be tougher. I'll be curious to see how bloody it is. I think it will be bloody for those who have overraised and not been disciplined. And for others, it might not be quite so bad. Uh, but retail is actually an interesting point. And I do have a, you know, kind of— it's like, it, Surprises when I got into Remember, I started thinking about doing this book initially in 2016. I was still working full-time, managing yeah. editor at the Los Angeles Times. I didn't really start working on it full-time until 2018. Between that period of time, you know, another surprise was, hey, we went from direct-to-consumer predominantly. Warby Park was an early exception, opening retail stores, to multi-channel for a lot of brands, uh, to varying extents. You know, kind of Glossier does a lot of pop-ups. Pop and has two very popular and I'm sure pay-for-themselves stores, one in West Hollywood Dest- in L.A. and the other one in, you know, kind of uh, Manhattan. Destinations. You know. They
1: are destinations, destinations. For, for both young girls and old and older women and alike. And
2: brilliant, yep. brilliant, brilliant. You know, others are dabbling. Into, so I had to say, why is that happening and what does it mean? I kind of came across a couple of interesting things, people who have actually done quite a bit of research on this, including there was a marketing professor at uh, Penn who was an advisor to the Warby Parker guys and who's done a lot of looking at this. And he said, for some of the, uh, 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 these companies, and, uh, and the needle is true, when you open a retail store in an area, your digital sales increase, your online sales increase too. Mm-hmm. Again, it just it creates awareness, uh, credibility, Uh, and all. Uh, You can't go crazy. You can't overspend. It helps the fact that there are a lot of empty storefronts where you can actually get good deals uh, to get into. So that was one of what was going on. And the second thing is, in many product categories still, 80 to 90 percent of purchases are made in retail stores. Now, that, that, you know, kind of 10 years ago, that was probably 95 percent. Ten years from now, it might be 60 percent. If you, are making, a lot. If, if you are making, If you're making a consumer product, you want to go where your customers are. And once you have reached a, either a saturation point or you're getting to the point where it's less cost-effective to get those customers online, you're going to look at other options. You know, kind of Quip, for example, is now in Target. Uh, and it, for the first two or three years, it was online only. Interestingly, kind of they said, okay, we'll, we'll sell to you, but – we don't want to sell um, our replacement brush heads right. to you. you People need to, have to you subscribe need, yeah. if you want that. Right. An important thing there, we get a direct relationship with our customer. Because a lot of these companies don't want to go to retail because – or simply retail because they don't want to lose that connection with the customer, which is really important to them to understand, you know, kind of their customer's behavior uh, as opposed to try to decipher their customer's behavior based on what they do at a physical retail store.
1: And we see these VC cycles over the years where, you know, every few years, profitability becomes the in yeah, the right. in metric. <laughs> now, what the actual metric is, how people define that – Adjusted EBITDA, EBITDA, gross profit, uh, contribution margin, like that's all over the place. But one outcome that I, you know, we were starting to see, I think, in the last year or two, but the Casper IPO maybe sort of, could be an inflection point, yep. is the oh shit of, um, from entrepreneurs and VCs, that the public market, I mean, we'll see what happens with Casper. Right. And I don't know if this will publish before or after a possible IPO, but we'll see. Um, the oh shit of... Yeah, the the public markets are probably not going to value these companies like they've been. They were valued four, right, or five right. years ago. It doesn't on mean private that they market.
2: might be kind of fairly valuable companies. Sure, it could be that for investors who got in toward the end, they're not such good companies.
1: And for employees, they could be employees who dreamed of riches, riches from they, stock options. Right,
2: they could be less lucrative. Yeah, or if you were got in late, maybe not at all. I mean, let's not count Casper out. It's got a very strong brand name. And even if it doesn't go out at the price that it may have wanted to, um, can I say one word about that? Yeah, please. Tesla. (laughs) Okay. A year ago, Tesla's execution problems were great. There were a lot of people saying, is this company going to survive? Yeah. Right? And today, they seem to have you know, kind of asterisk. Mm -hmm. They seem to, I'm not covering that company, they seem to have gotten their production line issues, you know, kind of much more under control. And they're making money. They were losing gobs of money just a year ago. And the stock is at an all-time high. Okay. So, sometimes problems focus the mind. Yeah, (laughs) right. of, Of business people. And you get disciplined, or maybe you weren't disciplined. You know, kind of, you know, we have to be doing this better, differently, you know, kind of we can't continue like this going forward. Casper also
1: just recently was sort of undercovered in the business world, but they hired a, a president who um, she has background that she was running Quidzy inside of Amazon. Uh, she, um, I mean, this is an experienced operator who will see how much of a difference she does or doesn't make. but. Um, I I completely agree. It'll be a – whatever happens will be a fascinating story. Right,
2: right. Um, But it's harder. I mean, Jason, you make a good point. And and I think kind of in in even the two years that I've been really kind of into this, it's it's getting a little bit harder. I do think that you'll continue to have a lot of startups. Uh, And they might be looking for niche categories. I think there's going to be a lot more fragmentation. Then in the future, they're not going to have any company that's going to have a 70 percent market share in razors again, like Gillette. I don't think it's just going to happen unless they try to buy, to, to buy somebody. I just don't think that's possible. I think that, that – and, and this is good for consumers. There is more choice than ever because if somebody starts abusing their market dominance to the extent that somebody could get some dominance, in the past, it was very hard to challenge that. Now, somebody will come in and say, "Look, you know, kind of I'm going to give a better price, a better value, even yep. if it's a better customer experience." So I think that's I, I do think that we're kind of on a th- there's been a change. Moneyball. The book by yeah. Michael Lewis. Okay, what was Moneyball all about? It was use of technology, that is data, data analytics by small baseball teams, small market baseball teams, starting with the Oakland Athletics that couldn't compete Toe to toe with on money with the big market teams like the Yankees. So the idea was, hey, we're gonna have to be smarter somehow. We're gonna use data analytics to help inform the way that we bid for talent. And I think this is in some ways a moneyball moment in the consumer. Things have changed forever in the way. Now, of course, the Yankees now can use data analytics. Sure. So that can always happen, and the bigger companies can start using that, and they they are. That's another reason why it'll be harder. But I do think the game has changed. I think there is something permanent that has happened here.
1: We're going to take another break now. We'll be back after this with Larry Ingrasia, the author of Billion Dollar Brand Club.
0: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day.
1: One hope I have is that if, as I suppose, um, it may start and it has started to get a little bit harder to raise a lot of money if you're one of these companies, you need Which to be, might be good. You need to be more, You, you in, in theory, you need to be more focused. Um, advertising is more expensive. So that is not a game you can just play and win for years. But there is some product innovation here. But maybe we see, you know, that more of these companies start competing on advertising actually a better product. Differentiated product. And that's always a welcome thing in yeah, any right, market, right? right? Yeah. And so—
2: I think a lot of them are competing on—we've talked about marketing, but also on customer experience. Sure. You know, kind of—so uh, Warby Parker, I think that is, like, hugely important to their success. Uh, and I know that from personal experience. Uh, uh, a few years ago, I got a new prescription. I thought, I'll try Warby Parker. And I went in there and, like— Three times, three different times, you know, kind of didn't seem to be working, kind of, oh, we'll try this and try that. And I returned each time. Turned out the prescription wasn't good. <laughs> for my I, you know, kind of saw. I kept, I actually was so frustrated, I kept the glasses that I had. Mm. You know, six months later, I got a new prescription. But I had a really good experience. I felt good about it. They were like totally fine, right? It doesn't work for you. It doesn't work for you. Please think about us next time. I got a new prescription, new optometrist. Yeah. <laughs> and thought, okay, I need why don't I try them again? This time, first time, boom. Okay. Hmm. They've kind of won me over as a customer. And oh by the way, and I have a stronger prescription, so it's not the ninety-five dollar, you know, kind of things when you're young and you don't really need, <laughs> you know, kind of <laughs> as much of a correction. You know, it was like four hundred or so versus $750 or so. Again, they, they've got my, that was a customer experience thing. So, you know, even in those categories, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're right, you know, kind of there may be more product differentiation, but a lot of products are becoming a bit commoditized uh, uh, because the Asian manufacturers have been so good. They used to just take your order and produce whatever you you know, kind of uh, uh, gave them. Now they'll say, hey, you know, your design could be improved by doing this or this or this because why? <laughs> we've made millions of them yep. for other people, yeah. right? In fact, sometimes it's we've made it for the brand name people, and we've got a separate line over here for you, but we'll kind of like, you know, kind of run these in parallel. Uh, so, the, the the quality of all products, I think, has improved, and that customer experience, that customer differentiation. Uh, getting back to uh, Warby Parker, called up their customer service, you know, which they call customer experience. Within 6 to 10 seconds, somebody's going to answer the phone. They're all based in the U.S. And they realize that, you know, especially when you're dealing with something like a prescription and you want to kind of check something out, and you know, you want to have a very clear and easy conversation. You know, many of their call center, they don't even call them call center, again, customer experience uh, reps are college graduates, you know, kind of people who can really help you. And they use those as jumping off points to learn about the industry and go elsewhere. But it's a win-win situation for Warby and for the customer.
1: The The customer service topic is something that's come up related to these companies recently in the press. So there's been... Uh, some coverage by some of our sister publications about alleged growth-at-all-cost type cultures at a couple of these companies, Third Love's one, Away's another. I'm curious if you, in your reporting, came across any of that. And, and either way, sort of what do you think of um, yeah, I, I, wh- I, I, why that might be? I,
2: I didn't hear a lot of that, okay, uh, because I was more interested in the how of these companies happening. Uh, a couple of thoughts, though, after reading those stories, which were interesting pieces. One, these are startups. You know, kind of anybody working at a startup is going to have to kind of kill themselves. I don't know, care if you're the, start, the founder or if you're kind of a call center person. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's tough. They're, it's like live or die, right? We've talked about how competitive some of these categories are. I'm not excusing the stuff, for example, some of the crazy stuff in a way, the email messages and, you know, kind of uh, upbraiding people. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure that, you know, kind of uh, they're very embarrassed about that. The third love stuff I thought was a little bit more ridiculous, you know, kind of – I know what you're talking about. At one point, uh, they they got in a kind of spat with uh, Victoria Victoria's Secret. Took an advantage of it. Yeah. They were taking out an ad you know, kind of to say how, you know, point out to, to people how different they were from Victoria's Secret, and I think they wrote that, and Dave Spector, the founder, yeah. kind of, you know, kind of said, hey, I want to change some of this, and I think we can do better or whatever, and some of the people were offended that a guy kind of did that. Well, excuse me, he <laughs> he's the co-founder with his wife. This is a big moment for the company. I'm sorry. You know, he's the boss. He gets to say that.
1: Yeah yeah, there's also there's also some you know, accusations of tough, tough, really tough management there. And I, I think the I think what we're seeing is startups are tough and and you know, some people are expected to kill themselves and or a founder may think a whole company is expected to kill themselves
2: yeah. and when, founders you have the, have started, when you have
1: some of the lowest paid people with the least upside that are being asked the same thing that that point. a founder might good you point. know think a, a founder might do themselves. Yep. It can create real
2: problems. Yeah, yeah un- understood. And also, they're founders of startups, not many of them have run things before. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, they're, they're kind of learning as they go and making yeah. mistakes a- a- as, as they go. So it's not to excuse any of that. But I think the, the bigger question um, here is, um, were those problems so big that it's going to cause problems for their brands? And, and I actually don't think so. Yeah. Now I did watch, you know, kind of uh, some of the reaction to a way. Oh, I'm never going to buy their product, and you know, uh, oh my God, I didn't realize that. You know, I think that's momentary. I think if yeah, we'll if,
1: see what the sales da- there. There are there are ways to try to get at the sales data, and we'll 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 be looking. Yeah, for that. and
2: and and I think if you make a good product and good customer experience that, you know, some of these—and and the company learns from—I know that, you know, the, you know, one of the co-founders came back and she was going to leave, so, but, but learns from their sake. I think people can be pretty forgiving. In fact, I think if you look, you know, kind of of all the second acts in American business yeah. <laughs> history, yeah. you know, American pol- political history, you'll find that people can come back. And so I, I, I don't think it's going to have a permanent— Unless there is a deep, ongoing problem. I don't think necessarily it's going to have a permanent effect.
1: It's also interesting to me, this topic, because these brands and, you know, the people who are regular consumers of them, who grow to love them, they expect more from them than a traditional brand. Whether or not that's fair, some of these companies build themselves on that, on sort of that idea. And so— as we watch what whether there is a sales impact, that's just one thing that makes yep. me think maybe it could be different. With some people. When yeah.
2: some, so, you know, uh, these are called direct-to-consumer companies uh, because that's how many of them started at. I also like to think of them as connect-to-consumer companies. Yep. Uh, more than most consumer products, they really try to connect with their customers. I mean, if you look at Third Love's advertising, again, it's very much, you know, kind of we're for all women. Whatever your body looks like. You know, kind of – you don't have to be – look like a model the way that Third Love's marketing – I mean, excuse me, the way that Victoria's Secret's marketing kind of makes is, – is is targeted. You know, you can be and, – and that is a message that really resonates with with uh, a lot of customers. Um, Michael Dubin, Dollar Shave Club, you know, our blades are fucking great. Yeah. Um, you know, with his target, it really resonates. It connects. And so I think that many of these companies – and in a way, the reason I think that it succeeded is a lifestyle company, and, and I, there's a chapter on luggage and how it came out the winner in that category, and others went by the wayside. And I think it is a connect to consumer, and so I do think that you point out that is probably the the big risk there, that, you know, kind of there is an expectation that this is my brand. They have feel an ownership brand. Um, I have a nice little anecdote um, in the book about Harry's, uh, which also shows, by the way, that you can have more than one winner in a category. Yeah. A giant
1: giant category. And a
2: giant category. that gets, you know, kind of look at the size of the category. So Harry's from the start used to – shipped its first razor when you bought it with a plastic cover for the cartridge. Most people got it, you know, kind of open it up, throw away the plastic cartridge, shave, and then they get ready to go traveling. They throw it in their travel kit and they say – their shaving kit and they say, oh, kind of, I wish I had that uh, cover because, you know, blade won't get – doll and I won't reach in. Have you ever done that? I did that once, kind of reached in and kind of sliced my finger, you know. And enough people asked about this that they said, oh, okay, uh, we'll sell you one. And it's like, you can buy a plastic cover for your Harry's razor cartridge for a buck. buck. You know, do they make much money on it? No. But does it tell the consumer, we're listening to you? We're, you, know, kind of we're, you know, kind of you're part of this. You can have a say in, in, in our company. Similar Glossier, another example I have in, in the story. There's uh, an African-American woman in Atlanta. She had started a blog called Glossier uh, or, or a, a, a Twitter uh, a kind of a hashtag, Glossier Brown, commenting on stuff. At one point she said, you know, I really like their products, but, you know, they don't have shades for, you know, uh, uh, darker colored African-American women. She didn't say anything to the company. The company saw that. They contacted her. They said, "Hey, can you come up to our office in New York and maybe tell us what colors and shades right. that you think that we ought to have?" And they did. So these are companies that connect and listen to their customers. I think in a in a far better way, in a personalized way, than big companies. And you know, kind of that's another element of their success.
1: One, one last thing on this, and and one other question. I'll let you get out of here. Um, My assumption, what I've seen sort of anecdotally is maybe not the winners in each of these big categories, but numbers twos and threes are starting to have to do things they didn't want to do, like go to Amazon and say, you know what, maybe we will sell wholesale to you. I I wonder what you think of that idea that, you know, Amazon is recruiting a lot of these companies very, very hard. Did you come across anything that told you that you know, yeah. we, we may see more of these brands having to re- it not only sell to Amazon, but perhaps rely on a company like Amazon more right, than right. they want to I think they to. don't
2: want to rely on Amazon. Yep. But, again, it gets to the point. Where, so let's go where the customers are. A lot of people go to the Amazon. Okay. So, I think the smart companies are trying to do this in a way that is a win-win situation. So, for example, Tuft & Needle has an Amazon-only brand. It's right. a lower price point. I think Casper does, too. Uh, so, we're not selling everything. On on Amazon, we're doing something that will kind of spread our brand name, kind of work for us. But it's a huge marketplace, you know, kind of. And and to ignore it, it's a little like saying we're going to ignore physical retail. You know, you can up to a point, but to keep growing, you know, maybe it's not a bad idea. I think you have to have a very well-conceived, well-thought-out strategy for doing that. So, it's not a win for Amazon and a lose for you.
1: Yep. We talked about early in this conversation— you hadn't regularly written since you were an editor for so long in, in a long time, a couple of decades. What was the hardest thing about getting back to reporting and writing when it came to this
2: book? So I think there's something was specific about this. And the, the writing, you know, as an editor, you're doing a lot of writing. You know, you're kind of helping people shape and helping think about the structure of sure. everything. And so I had that. I hadn't covered this topic, right? You know, unlike, you know, somebody like John Kerry, who wrote the Great, great book, Bad Blood, who covered that for The Wall Street Journal and had kind of scads of sources. You know, for me, it was kind of getting back into, like, I've got to build sources here. And, you know, you start with one person and you get another person. But that took time. I didn't have a database to start up. And the second thing is because I was looking at the different aspects of what made this revolution in creation brands possible, marketing, you know, kind of outsourcing uh, there's a whole chapter on, which we haven't checked out, which I found fascinating, on logistics and, yeah. and distribution. I had to become a little bit, and then on data, I had to become a little bit of an expert on those areas. So it was, you know, kind of working to kind of get up to speed on all of those things. And finally, you know, some of these founders are like really busy, not surprising. You know, they're, you know, especially when I started talking to them, you know, a couple of years ago, companies are small, you know, they don't have a lot of time. Sure. And so it was trying to kind of get their time. But, you know, kind of in the end, it was a very rewarding experience. And I think it really gives a look at, you know, kind of a corner, although a big corner, because the consumer economy in the U.S., you know, consumer products is trillions of dollars of the U.S. economy and how it is evolving and where it's going.
1: Larry Garcia author of the Billion Dollar Brand Club. Uh, where can people find your book? And c- Is it out? It's out.
2: It is out. It came out a couple of days ago. Uh, Any place that you can buy online, it'll be in bookstores. And uh, you can find links at www.larryandgracia.com. (laughs) I-N-G-R-A-S-S-I-A.com. Uh,
1: Have you started on a follow-up yet?
2: Uh, Jason, <laughs>
1: I, I, I just
2: finished it. You,
1: you could tell I haven't written a book yet. so <laughs> Thanks. great Lar- conversation. Larry, Here. thanks so much for your time.
2: Okay, my pleasure.
1: Thank you so much, Larry, for coming on the show. As for me, you can follow me on Twitter at Del Rey. Rico Decode's regular host Kara Swisher is at Kara Swisher. Our executive producer Erica Anderson is at Erica America. And our producer, Eric Johnson, is at hey hey esj. If you liked this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants, which I actually hosted in season one, which is all about Amazon's rise. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. The show will be back on Friday. Tune in then.